Hi, this is Ben Lowell with Back to the Bible Canada and Dr. John Newfeld. Today we continue our Highlight Reel series with a message from singing the Lord's song in a strange land. So let's turn in our Bibles to Daniel chapter 4 verses 1 to 22 as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message titled, God Opposes the Proud. It's not hard to understand why people who achieve vast success in this life become proud. When many of your dreams succeed and when a large group of men and women serve you, and when you gain the power to do what you set out to do, well, in those cases, one might argue that it is only natural to think of yourself as an exceptional human being. Because in a sense, you're right. The rich and powerful have always known this. What has in our day been called the 1%, Know that what they have become and who they are is truly remarkable. And with this knowledge comes a disregard of God and a condescension of the plight of others. Daniel chapter 4 is a remarkable chapter in the Bible for a number of reasons. First, it's the only chapter in the Bible that has been written by a Gentile and a pagan king. Yeah, you heard me right. Daniel 4 seems to have been imported by Daniel into his book, and it seems to have come from the personal diary of Nebuchadnezzar. It would seem that the Holy Spirit wanted this chapter included for what it says is absolutely true. The second reason this chapter is remarkable is for its candor. It's very rare a human being who can speak with absolute clarity about his greatest moment of failure and consequent humiliation. Most kings and presidents and world leaders cover up their failures or appoint spin doctors to attempt to distort these moments of failure. But this king is not interested in doing anything but portraying what actually happened to humiliate him. In Daniel 4, we see a faint whisper of Psalm 51 where David openly confesses his own sin. I think it too much to argue for the conversion of Nebuchadnezzar here. But I also do not think that prospect to be beyond the possible. After all, even kings and the most powerful ones in all of history are still human beings created in the image of God and as such can be redeemed by God. We're left wondering if Nebuchadnezzar was converted. Now, before we plow into the details, one more item. Even while Daniel doesn't date events recorded in this chapter from the clues that are found in this text, it would seem that this event is probably quite late in the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. For example, in chapter 4, verse 30, it would seem that all of the building operations engaged in by Nebuchadnezzar have now been completed. Remembering that Nebuchadnezzar reigned for 43 years, some believe this event occurred in or around the 34th year of his reign. This was the time in which his kingdom had peace and his enemies were conquered and the city of Babylon had become the splendor of the earth and his place in history was secure. And so with that background, let's hear what Nebuchadnezzar had to say. I'm reading chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. King Nebuchadnezzar to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are His signs, how mighty His wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and His dominion endures from generation to generation. As we have noticed throughout this study, the phrase, the Most High God, may have meant that Nebuchadnezzar has become aware that Yahweh, 
the God of the Hebrews, has a position higher than the gods of the Babylonians and higher than the king himself. Indeed, the king is writing to his kingdom, and this is the message he wants the nations of the earth to hear. The God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob is above all religious systems, and he is above every government that exists on the earth. Notice the terms he uses. Great, mighty, He refers to the Most High God's everlasting kingdom, and by using that phrase, he acknowledges that every other kingdom on earth is not. Generations will come and go, kingdoms will rise and fall, but the government of the Most High God is eternal. It will never end. Imagine receiving such a letter from your prime minister. Imagine the President of the United States writing such a letter to all the nations where the United States provides leadership. Once we imagine that, we get a sense of the scope of this thing. And for anyone in the ancient world reading this, this must have been stunning. I mean, what brought this on? But imagine the Jewish people reading this. Imagine how it changed their views. I mean, for years, the greatest problem in Israel was idolatry. And the reason for idols is that Israel wanted to be safe. I mean, after all, didn't the gods of the Egyptians and the gods of the Syrians and the Assyrians and other nations, weren't these gods just as powerful as Yahweh? And now the man whose kingdom seemed unshakable, whose power was unstoppable, and whose gods were everywhere, writes a letter like this. If we can all stop and think for a moment what this means. For Christians today who fear the next political development in their nations, who foolishly wonder if the church can survive if we're losing our young people, who have a worldview that the world is so strong and the church is so weak, the book of Daniel has a response. Did you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been whispered in your ear that our God is the most high God? Let's continue to read. Why did Nebuchadnezzar come to this conclusion? I'm reading verses 4 and 5. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and visions of my head alarmed me. We noticed that this was not the first time the king had a dream from the Most High God that shattered his confidence. In the earlier dream, he was to learn that his kingdom was but one of a series of kingdoms that will rise and fall until the eternal kingdom of God rules without end. Now another dream, and as before, he's afraid. Verses 6 to 9. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last Daniel came in before me, he who was named Belteshazzar after the name of my God, in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for you. Tell me this vision of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. Now, before we move on, I noticed several fascinating features. It would seem at this point in the late career of Daniel that his position in the kingdom is that he is the chief of the magicians. You may remember that the magicians or diviners were a priestly class. They were well-educated in the sacred writings of the Babylonian religions, and they specialized in the wisdom that came from these writings and knew how to apply recorded religious texts to the present experience of the king. Daniel, as we've seen, was never not then or in the past syncretistic. 
As we will see in chapter 6, he daily opens his window toward Jerusalem to pray. He does not believe that Babylon represents his faith. He's not private about the fact that his God is Yahweh of hosts. And since the magicians were educated in sacred writings, Daniel does not just know the writings of the Babylonian occultic religions, he knows the writings left behind of the law and the prophets of Israel. I can only imagine the influence that he must have had as he persuaded the magicians of his day to also study the sacred writings of Israel. And as an aside, this is who the Magi are at the time of the birth of Jesus. The reason they had an awareness of the Messiah to be born in Israel is because of the legacy that Daniel left behind, a legacy that makes its way into the very first pages of the New Testament. Notice, however, that in writing his account, we get hints that Nebuchadnezzar's worldview has not changed. He is speaking about his God in opposition to Daniel's God. How do we understand that? Is he writing from the perspective of the time the events happened, or is he writing from the perspective of the completion of the events? Well, we can't say. It may be that Nebuchadnezzar never made Yahweh his God, even though he recognized him to be supreme. See, many North American Christians today put a great deal of emphasis on the conversion of political leaders and will even base their voting patterns on that. It's not hard to see why that's so attractive. Now, we do seek the conversion of all people, but let me suggest that when political leaders respect our God and recognize his sovereignty, we are in an excellent place. Political leaders are called upon, if they govern well, to respect and protect and care for people of all perspectives, and Christians would want that as well. But Daniel's story tells us that while we never see Babylon becoming Jerusalem, we can pray that there is a heightened awareness of the God who reigns over all things in our culture. Now, we're going to continue to talk about this more as we make our way through this passage, but let's notice that God has a way of breaking into even the most pagan of cultures. The Partner to Tell monthly partner program continues to hit new heights of involvement from friends from coast to coast. There is not a single province who isn't represented by a committed partner in ministry. The regular gifts of monthly partners have become a stabilizing and foundational force for the ministry of Back to the Bible Canada. The impact extends to every aspect of ministry, breaking down barriers, financial or otherwise, for making Bible teaching resources available to anyone seeking to know the truth of the gospel and desiring to grow deeper in their relationship to the Lord. So if you're a monthly partner and you wonder what impact you're making, let me assure you that you're an integral part of all that is done to lead people closer in their walk with Jesus every day. To find out more about becoming a partner to tell monthly partner and join this incredible group of ministry friends, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or sign up online at backtothebible.ca. King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream that troubled him, and as is the custom for the king, he called his religious counselors to interpret the dream, but they cannot. In the end, he calls Daniel the servant of Yahweh. Nebuchadnezzar realizes that Yahweh is the Most High God, and therefore, 
even though this God is the God of the Jews, he realizes his authority and therefore calls Daniel to come and interpret his dream. He begins by telling Daniel his dream, and I'm reading Daniel 4, 10 to 17. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the ends of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heaven lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts of the grass of the earth. Let periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdoms of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. Now, if you and I had never read this passage before, we have got to think that this is not a difficult dream to interpret. But all the wise men of Babylon seem incapable of making sense of it. Now, that's because in that day, one needed to take great care not to bring the king bad news. And besides, it must have graded the wise men of Babylon to hear of a dream in which a watcher of some sort appears with the announcement that the Most High rules the kingdoms of men. And so for political reasons and for personal safety reasons and for religious reasons, these wise men couldn't come to terms with a dream. I'm reminded how often our own values and prejudices and worldview and the things we love and hate make it impossible to see the obvious. One of the reasons people refuse to repent of sins is because of what that will mean to a host of other things that they love more than the truth. And so these wise men simply scratch their heads, wondering what the chopping down of a huge tree could actually mean. Now, before we move on, let's identify a few aspects of the dream. First, we might wonder who the watcher is that makes the announcement. Notice that Nebuchadnezzar describes him as a holy one. Several biblical texts come to mind, and the first one comes from 1 Kings 22, verse 19, where we read of a prophet by the name of Micaiah. Let me read it. And Micaiah said, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing beside him on his right and on his left. It seems that there are servants standing around the throne ready to do his bidding. They belong to the great band of angels. Back in Genesis 28 verse 12, when Jacob has a dream, the text reads, And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Now, that dream gives an image of the angels of God constantly going from heaven to earth and then back into heaven. Apparently, they're receiving their marching orders from God and then return to earth to carry out the decrees of the Lord. Later on in Daniel 8, Daniel himself will have a very significant and a powerful vision, and God commissions the angel Gabriel, one of his chief commanders, to explain the vision to Daniel. See, the watcher, or 
as some call him, the wakeful one, is a powerful angel sent from God and is awake and watching the affairs of the human race on behalf of God. He announces that the decree of all the watchers, which is given them by God himself, that what this dream accomplishes is that all the living might know that the Most High and the Most High alone rules all the kingdoms of men. Now, it's quite clear to me that Nebuchadnezzar would have understood a great portion of this dream. But his real question must have been this. Does this dream refer specifically to me? Who else can the dream refer to since the tree is grand and beautiful and great and abundant enough for all? But how can the dream refer to me since it's about to be chopped down? So we come now to verse 18. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. There may be a thought behind this. When the last dream had troubled the king, Daniel had pointed out that the fulfillment of the dream was still a long way off, and perhaps he would give the same hopeful interpretation now. Now to verses 19 to 22. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong, so that its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the ends of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all, under which beasts of the field found shade, and in whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven and your dominion to the end of the earth. And here we now see Daniel's alarm. Telling the king he was going to be chopped down to size could get the bearer of that news chopped down to size. But Nebuchadnezzar's assurance that nothing that Daniel said would imperil him tells us that Nebuchadnezzar did not doubt Daniel's loyalty to the king, nor that when he spoke he was entirely truthful. But that brings us back to the theme of this chapter and that of pride. What does one do when one becomes strong so that one's power reaches to the heavens and is visible to the ends of the earth? Let me explain the greatest danger of all by having us listen to the testimony of Scripture on this matter. We begin with Isaiah 57, verse 15. For thus says the Holy One who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is Holy. I dwell in a high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. We start by simply noting that one whose greatness so dwarfs the greatest human being who has ever lived has chosen to be near not to the person impressed with himself or herself, but with a person who is not enamored with himself or herself. Once we take note of our accomplishments and begin to imagine how much more we have accomplished than have others, then we can rest assured that the Most High God has not committed himself to us. Let's take this thought one step further. James 4 verse 6 says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Have you noticed that once we become enamored with ourselves, there is one who is not enamored with us at all, and it's God. 
God promises that he will use his resources as God to oppose you. Indeed, God will become your foe. Nebuchadnezzar was about to find that out. And here's a little secret. He's not the only one. If you develop a haughty spirit and become conceited and are overwhelmed with your own sense of self-importance, become confident in yourself, then hear me. In time, if you do not change your ways, God will chop you down. And in the case of Nebuchadnezzar, he suffered madness for seven years, humiliating himself in front of his servants who once feared him. And here's the secret. The higher you fly, when you fall, the greater will be your humiliation when God takes you down. If even the great Nebuchadnezzar could not avoid the humbling hand of God, don't you think for a moment that you will be able to? The great and glorious God will not tolerate your vain attempts to think more highly of yourself than you ought. For after all, if you have accomplished anything in this life, it is only because the one who lives forever and ever has willed it to be. The best way to avoid humiliation is to humble ourselves before the humiliation actually comes to us. It is to remember that all that we have and all that we have accomplished has been given to us as a gift and to be profoundly grateful for what God has done and to take absolutely no credit ourselves. John, this is a great cautionary message, isn't it? It seems that we have this tendency uh, to take credit for things that probably we should not take credit for, but that happens in every area of our lives, even in our leadership in the church or in our fellowship of believers. Yeah, you probably put your finger on one of the most difficult areas for all of us because, you know, it's when we combine our own spirituality with pride that we end up looking like Pharisees in the end of the day. And it's so easy to do. I remember hearing a story in which uh, Spurgeon uh, was being told by someone that he had just preached an excellent sermon. And he said, I I already know that. The devil already told me as I finished my message today. So I think we need to be very careful about these matters whenever we render service unto the Lord, how quickly we take glory for ourselves and try to rob it from the one true God. Thanks, John. Join us again tomorrow on Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. With the initial Back to the Bible India Pastors Conference now complete, the ministry partnership we share continues every day as the Bible teaching messages of Dr. John Newfeld and a variety of other Bible teaching and education ministries continue. The leadership in India have spoken of the great encouragement as the ministry reestablishes its presence across the country on radio, online, through print resources, correspondence courses, and of course teaching conferences like those that have just taken place. So it's with enthusiasm that we continue to support a renewal of ministry that promises to impact so many lives. The cost incurred by Back to the Bible Canada this year will be in the area of $75,000 or approximately $6,250 a month. Your continued commitment through a one-time gift or becoming an international ministry partner would mean so much. 
So contact us today at 1-800-663-2425 or online at backtothebible.ca and join our international ministry efforts.